Good morning. It's good to be together uh, and, and sing and gather this morning. <clears throat> On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me. All right. On the second day of Christmas, my true love gave to me. And a partridge and a pear tree. On the third day of Christmas, my true love gave to me three French hens and turtle doves and a partridge and a pear tree. All right. Um, some of you are wondering, are we going to do this whole thing? Uh, and, and some of you are thrilled at that thought, and the rest of you are ready to, to leave. Uh, we're, that, that's enough. As you know, this is the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas right? Uh, and much more than just a um, fun Christmas time song, the 12 days of Christmas are a historical fact, a historical tradition in the church. Um, uh, traditionally, within the first few centuries of the church, uh, December 25th became the first day of Christmas. And Christmas was celebrated for 12 days. It wasn't just a day, but it was a whole season uh, that continued as, as people would continue giving gifts to one another and remembering the light of Christ who has come and arrived. Uh, and it all leads up and, and ends on, on January 5th, the 12th day of Christmas. And then on January 6th, there was another special day, which was known as Epiphany. The day of epiphany uh, is what it came to be known. Uh, now, for us, this word epiphany uh, is, it describes one of those aha light bulb moments, right? Which is a great image because the word epiphany itself comes from the Greek words epiphinos, which means to shine upon. Uh, it's, it's this picture of a light coming on, a light shining. Uh, and that is what this day of Epiphany is known as. January 6th came to be known as Epiphany because it celebrates the wise men who were guided to Jesus by the light of a shining star. And so it's this day of shining light. So today, just a couple days after the official day of Epiphany, we're going to reflect on this story together. So if you have a Bible and want to read along, we'll be in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 is where we read the story of this shining star. And as we turn there and, and begin to reflect on this story, light shining is a powerful thing. Uh, light has a way of breaking apart darkness and making things that were once mysterious clear. Uh, and that is what this light that shines in Epiphany does. Uh, it shines on things that, that may have been unknown or may have seemed unclear, and it begins to show things for what they are. Uh, it begins to reveal things in new ways. So Matthew chapter 2, beginning and verse 1, let's read together. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi 
from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, uh, came, came from Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born? King of the Jews. We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Well, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least of the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Well, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word and for your light that shines and reveals. God, I pray that as we reflect on the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is the story of Epiphany. The shining star. And today as we explore this story, I'd like to explore the characters that we see within it and, and consider where we might find ourselves in this story. Where we might see some of the world around us in this story. Because the story has this piercing light shining through it that I think reveals some things to us. It answers that question, who is Jesus and what is he like? As the light shines, we begin to see who he is, and we also begin to see who he is not. We live in a world where uh, there are paranoid politicians, there are stuffy religious people. And we see those very same people in this story. And in our world, a lot of times, those kinds of people are associated with Jesus. But we see something different as we look into this story. There are at least three characters or groups of people that I like to consider together this morning. There's the Magi. There's King Herod, 
And then there are the chief priests and the teachers of the law. I thought about titling this sermon, A King, Some Priests, and the Magi Walk Into a Star. Like a really bad joke. Um, Still a bad joke, but there it is. So let's dive in and look at each one of these. A king, the magi, and some priests, and a star. First, let's look at the magi. The magi. Who are these characters? Right, to understand them, we, we need to clear away some of the misconceptions and kind of popular folklore that revolves around them. Right? Much of which can be summed up in the song, We Three Kings. It's a great song in many ways. It's just not right. Um, because, well, they, they weren't kings. There weren't necessarily three of them. Uh, the word that's used to describe them is not king, but magi. Right? That's the Greek word. Sometimes it's translated wise men which we'll get to in a moment, Uh, but we don't have a number associated with them, right? It's plural, so we know it's more than one. That's kind of all that that we know. We get three because they give three gifts, and so maybe there were three of them, and each one gave a gift, but we just don't know if it was three or more or a whole crowd. Who knows? But there were these magi. They're not kings. There may be more than three of them. Who are they? Right? Who are they? Well, this word magi, as I said, is sometimes translated wise men, which is one way of thinking about them. Uh, but this word magi is where we get our English word magician, magic, right? Now, that doesn't mean that they were some sort of traveling carnival putting on magic shows for people. Uh, in the ancient world, they would have been people who studied mysterious things who sought after the unknown. They they were seekers and searchers. Uh, They they often studied the stars and the planets. We might think of them as astronomers or astrologers at that time. They searched for meaning and understanding from what they saw. They They were sort of like ancient scientists. And they were known for having a measure of understanding and and wisdom, which is why we have come to call them wise men. Now, they weren't kings, but they might have been employed by kings as advisors to help discern current events, to help make certain decisions. But again, we don't know for sure if these magi were sent by a king or a ruler, if they're just coming of their own accord because of what they had seen. But whatever we know is that they studied the stars, and what they saw sent them searching. And what did they see? Again, we're not entirely sure. There was some kind of star sign in the sky, but one theory is that they observed the alignment of not stars, but planets in the sky. Uh, About three times in one year around this period of time, there was a moment where Jupiter and Saturn aligned in the sky, in the ancient world. Uh, And in that time, Jupiter was often considered to represent royalty. It was kind of the sign of kings and kingdoms. And Saturn, for whatever reason, came to be associated with the people of Judea, the Jews. And so when Saturn and Jupiter aligned, they witnessed that and thought 
hmm, a king from the Jews. Let's go look. Let's go find them. That may be what had happened. One Bible commentary suggests that this conjunction of planets, giving the impression of one very bright star, would have meant to the competent astronomer that a new age was beginning in which the sovereignty of the world would shift to Judea. Whatever king is about to come from Judea, we got to pay attention to this guy. Let's go find him. So they went off to Jerusalem, the capital city of Judea, to see what was going on. And when they arrived, they asked this question, where is the one who has been born, king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Now, I I love this. Because in one statement, the Magi truly demonstrate a kind of wisdom that the rest of the characters we'll see are desperately missing. We saw his star, and we've come to worship him. Right? In this single statement, we see on the one hand, they have sharp minds, right? They are studied, they're observant. They're paying attention to the world around them. They're examining and investigating every detail. And at the same time, they have very open hearts as well. They have this desire to come and find and long to worship. So often these two things, the mind and the heart, are held at odds with one another, aren't they? Right? Either we're cold, calculating, and intellectual, or we're passionate, feeling, emotional. These two ways of being are often set against one another. But not so for the Magi. They are both thoughtful and worshipful. They're both thinking and feeling. They bring their whole selves to their task. This is who they are. And it's in this concert of both mind and heart that sends them on their journey. And it's in this that they come to find Jesus. This is why every week when we come to Scripture, we pray that God would sharpen our minds, and soften our hearts so that we would be a people who both know and love. This is who we want to be. It's a prayer to live in the same wisdom that these magi or wise men lived. It's a way of going on the very same journey that they have gone on. So these are the magi. Right? These, these ancient scientists with sharp minds and soft hearts who are seeking and searching to worship. And so these magi observed that a new king was coming from the Jews. They headed off to where? Well, the Jewish capital, Jerusalem. That must be where the king is, right? And they start asking around. And the next 
character that we encounter is a king, King Herod. And he's an important figure because, uh, officially speaking, Herod is the king of the Jews. He is the king of Judea over all the Jews. Herod grew up in Rome. He became a Roman politician. As a young man, he was governor of Galilee, an area in that part of the world. And eventually, he was crowned king of Judea within Rome. So he was a king over the Jewish people. And though he wasn't Jewish himself, uh, there were times that he was friendly toward the Jews. Uh, Among the projects that he undertook during his reign, uh, one of them was the renovation of the temple in Jerusalem, the Jewish temple. And I'm sure some of the Jewish people might have thought that that was overreach. Why are you getting involved in our uh, affairs, in our place? But many of them saw it as a sign of favor and blessing, right? Perhaps even a step toward establishing their own kingdom, right? But Herod, despite some good building projects, was not a gentle, benevolent king. Behind that front of a strong ruler was an immensity of paranoia. This is the problem with power and wealth. Anyone who has, has the potential to lose. And so when you have, it's very easy for all of life to become about keeping. And that's what happened to Herod. Herod's building projects were not uh, just a pursuit to create something beautiful. That would be nice. In many ways, uh, they were an attempt to protect his reputation. And, and beyond the Jerusalem temple, which he built, he also built mighty fortresses where he often hid away in paranoia and fear. You see, Herod was desperately afraid of losing power. So much so that whenever his sons grew up, he had them murdered. He had them put to death for fear that they might mutiny and take his throne prematurely. He was a paranoid guy, and he was heartless. And so it makes sense that when Herod hears the Magi come asking this question, where can we find the one who has been born king of the Jews. Verse 3 says, he was disturbed. Right? He was more than disturbed. He was afraid. He was paranoid. If there was a threat to his throne, he would find a way to end it. You see, where the Magi have this wisdom of both head and, and heart held together so beautifully, Herod is run by fear. And fear alone. He believes himself to be the ruler when in reality, he's being ruled by anxiety and fear. And though we may not be kings trying to protect our throne, many of us find ourselves in a similar place, ruled 
by fear, ruled by anxiety. Many of us easily perceive the world around us as a threat, something that's out to get us. And so we respond defensively. Many of us often live with a great deal of pressure upon our lives, either internally or externally. And we just move and and live under the weight of all of that. Do you resonate with any of this? I mean, I, I sure do. Fear, anxiety, these things just drive us sometimes. But we need to continually be reminded that there is a better, wiser way to live. We don't have to be ruled by these things. You see, Herod, ruled by anxiety and fear, begins to search for a way to squash this threat. We didn't read this far, but by the end of Matthew chapter 2, he will be putting to death a whole city of children, just like he did his own, to quash whatever might come against him. He's heartless. As the narrative continues, Herod consults with some of his own advisors to figure out what to do next, which leads us to the next characters that we find. Verse 4 says that Herod called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. So these chief priests and, and teachers of the law are the primary Jewish religious leaders. Uh, The teachers of the law were the scholars who knew all the ins and outs of the scriptures and the texts and and everything. These were the experts who were were sure to be able to, to give the right answers in the right time. And on an academic level, it really is a rousing success, right? I mean, he asks them, so where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And they immediately reply, in Bethlehem. In Judea, and they cite their source, Micah chapter 5, and they quote it. But that's it, right? That's where it stops. They got an A on their paper. They're consulted for knowledge, but their knowledge is where it ends. You see, while Herod is all action and anxiety without thought, these priests and teachers are all thought and no action. They're brilliant, they're knowledgeable, they're experts. But where is their heart? They have all the answers, but what are they doing? What are they actually doing? They're comfortably posted up in their positions in the temple and the schools. They're running their religion business. Things are going well. So why do we need to change anything? Why do we need to do anything other than what we're already doing? But here's the thing. If they know that the Messiah is going to come in Bethlehem, why aren't they there? 
Why aren't they looking? Right? I mean, they're the Jewish leaders. Like, they're the ones who are supposed to actually believe this stuff. Not just know about it. And yet, they stay in their comforts, in their knowledge, without ever having it bring them to the challenge of action. I wonder if any of us find ourselves in a similar place. I certainly prefer being comfortable to being challenged. That's pretty normal, right? But faith is not just an interesting set of information. It's not just things to study and know. Faith is a life to live. It's not about what we know. It's about who we are and how we are every day. Jesus tells us to love our neighbors. We know this. But what does it look like to actually live it? Jesus tells us to forgive our enemies. We know this. But who are the ones that we need to forgive? Where are the places that we need to ask for forgiveness? Jesus tells us, if you come and care for those in need, it's like caring for me. Right? We know that if we, if we do this, we, we can, can encounter Jesus there. And yet, we often prefer staying comfortable and what we know without doing anything. But here's the thing, if we want to truly know Jesus, then we must find ways to live into these things and not just know about them. The Magi took a long journey, some say maybe as far as 900 miles to seek out where the star was leading them. Sometimes the longer journey is simply the two feet from the head to the heart. That's a journey that we're all on. What does it look like to, to move from just knowing about things to really living those things? What does it look like to let things settle down into our hearts and let those actually become part of our life? Is there anything that maybe you know or you've been thinking about that you could start putting some action to this year? Any invitations maybe that God is calling you toward this year? What might that look like? So we've seen Herod, anxious, hidden away, plotting. We've seen the chief priests and the teachers, informative, but indifferent. And then the narrative comes back to the Magi. 
After talking with the paranoid king of the Jews, supposedly, they continue on their search for this new king of the Jews, whose star they've seen. And living in the wisdom of both mind and heart, their journey leads them to Jesus, where they bow down, they worship, and they offer gifts. Now, as we zoom out and look at the whole story, there's some deep, subversive irony in all of these characters. Because what's the story that we expect compared to the story that we've actually seen here? Right? If you're looking for a king who's going to rule and bring justice and peace, well, where do you go? You go to the capital city. You go to the palace. And yet, what did the Magi find when they went there? An anxious, paranoid tyrant who's not bringing justice and peace, but ordering whole cities of children to be murdered to keep himself safe. If you want to find spiritual knowledge, where do you go? Well, you you go to the religious leaders, right? The priests, the teachers of the law, right? They're surely the ones who who will show us the way, show us how to live, show us the Messiah, the truth. But what do we find? We find some knowledgeable but indifferent religious folks who aren't going to bother with getting involved in the matters of the world. You see, in the story, if we want to find a group of people who are really searching and really finding, we don't go to the religious leaders, the priests and the teachers. We go to this odd band of ancient scientists. They're the ones who are actually acting on what they've seen. They're the ones who are searching and seeking. They're not even Jews, but they're searching and they're seeking. And they're the ones who find Jesus. They're the ones who arrive at his feet and worship him and give him gifts. That's not the story we expect. But that's who God is. And when they arrive, they find the true king of the Jews. Not an anxious, paranoid politician trying to hold on to power. But God himself who's let go of all of his power and become a vulnerable child, ready to grow up in the midst of a vulnerable world. This is the king of the Jews. The next time we hear this phrase, king of the Jews, in Matthew's Gospel, 
It's a very different scene. It's not magi giving gifts and bowing down. It's Roman soldiers. And they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, ha, you're the king of the Jews. And then they beat him. They spout upon him. Oh yeah, they gave him a robe. They gave him a crown of thorns. And he eventually would be put on a throne. But it was not in a palace. It was on a cross. This is the king of the Jews. This is the king of the world. Not one who comes to conquer and destroy and hold on to power, but one who lets go of everything, even his own life, for the sake of the world. So Jesus is is not a stuffy politician. He's not anxious. He's not paranoid. And he's not indifferent and removed. He's present. He's vulnerable. And he gives up himself. What are the invitations for us as we come to him with our minds and our hearts this year? May we, like the Magi, bow down and worship him. Amen.